And now, to present the award for Best Supporting Actress are Mariel Hemingway and Elliot Gould. Thank you. The nominees for Best Supporting Actress are Mary Lou Retton, Fatal Affair, One Woman's Ordeal to Overcome the Death of Her Cat, set against the background of the Hindenburg disaster. Morgan Fairchild, Final Proposal, One Courageous Pioneer Woman's Triumphant Victory Over Bulimia, set against the background of the Donner Party Crossing. Shannon Doherty, Basic Analysis, One Woman's Triumph Over a Yeast Infection, set against the background of the tragic Buffalo Bill season of 1991. And Florence Henderson, analysis of a proposal. One woman struggled. Struggle could be anywhere. Had plenty of time to plant the bomb. What could it be? And the winner is. Boy, this is going to be dynamite. Jane. Frank, are you thinking what I'm thinking? Yes. Florence Henderson's going to win it. It's about time. No, the bomb is in one of those envelopes. You're right. And the winner is. <laughs> Mary Lou Retton for Fatal Affair. <laughs> Sorry, we were rooting for Florence Henderson. Yep, it's that time of year again. For those unfamiliar with the Movie Sneak's Cheapy Bin Awards, it's our personal twist, Craig's and mine, on award season. Not too long ago, in a universe not too far away, there existed a world where, dirty word coming up here, browsing was the norm. And we're kind of paying tribute to that ancient and quaint little notion. You remember the notion of browsing, right? That's when you'd actually spend time in a store reading book flaps in the backs of VHS and DVD cases. Oh, and we're really stepping into the Wayback Machine on this one. Remember being in a record store listening booth with headphones on, spending time reading album covers, and listening to something you never heard or even heard of, just to see if you'd like to take a flyer on it. Well, today in our world of instant downloads and specific music tracks and Netflix and Hulu, Amazon Prime, and other algorithms suggesting what other films you might like based on the titles you've already chosen, the quote-unquote art of the browse has in some respects been forgotten by one generation, and it's an all-but-alien concept to another. Uh, but then there's the cheapy bin. Those messy stacks of 2 to $4 movies in the middle of neighborhood supermarkets, department stores, Best Buys, Rite Aids, and even dollar stores have in some respects become the new film buff movie Well of the Souls, uh, or collection on a budget, if you will, where... Kind of because you have to, you spend time digging through a non-organized mass of titles, so coming across one you maybe weren't willing to pay 20 bucks to see at the movies, or even $14 to stream, but which you are willing to pay two bits to take home and take that proverbial flyer. Well, once per year, we love to point out a few titles which we saw in the previous year specifically because we took a chance on something we found in one of those cheapy bins. And oh, keep in mind, these are films which, because of the bin, we first saw within the last year, which doesn't necessarily mean they came out in the last year. Um, so there may be some older ones in there too. Uh, anyway, we've broken our awards picks into categories and whether you're seeking to replace old VHS tapes or complete a particular collection on your shelf, or just looking for a half decent movie on the cheap, maybe one even unavailable to stream, we're fairly certain you'll dig some of the titles we love bringing to everyone's attention in this, our alternate awards show. I'll also be chatting with renowned conductor Amy Anderson. Uh, that name some of you may know from the world tour a few years back of the Legend of Zelda orchestral concerts, and which others may know was the creator and conductor of the recent 
critically acclaimed Women Warriors multimedia concert, which premiered last year at New York's Lincoln Center, and of which I had the honor of attending, uh, and a version of which has just been released on CD. Pretty awesome woman. So we've got quite a bit packed into this one. I'm Craig Jamison of Gull Cottage Online. And I'm Jim Delaney of thelunchmovie.com, and welcome to an all-new edition of The Movie Sneak. Conductor and producer, and now throwing filmmaker, Amy Anderson is the founder of Orchestra Modern New York, which debuted at Carnegie Hall in 2017 and at Lincoln Center's Alice Tully Hall in 2019. Chances are you've seen and certainly heard her and her work via appearances over the years on The Late Show with Stephen Colbert and on CBS's Morning and Evening News and more. She's toured globally conducting operatic, symphonic, Broadway musical, and video game concerts, and she's the creator and producer of Women Warriors, The Voices of Change, a stunningly staged and executed multimedia live-to-picture symphony production featuring the music of eight celebrated contemporary female composers synced to a silent 70-minute documentary film. Premiering at Lincoln Center to rave reviews on September 20, 2019, the soul-stirring concert creation honors the strength and heroism of global activists fighting for social justice, human and civil rights, gender equality, environmental causes, and for the right of every girl around the world to an education. A soundtrack of Women Warriors was recently released on CD and is also available on pretty much every streaming platform. The film version of Women Warriors has recently been chosen as an official selection at the 2021 Chicago Indie Film Awards, the Indie Fest Film Awards, Impact Docs Awards, and the LA Independent Women Film Awards. And oh yeah, In 2014, Maestro Anderson traversed the globe touring with the Replay Symphony of Heroes concert. Then from 2015 to 2017, she was the music director-conductor of the world tour of The Legend of Zelda, Symphony of the Goddesses. So uh, yeah, she's been pretty darn busy. But she did manage to take a little time to sit down and chat with us. So Amy, thank you for uh, joining me here on The Movie Sneak. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Yeah, absolutely. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but your music and your personality, for that matter, from from what I've seen, seems to be a nifty combination of artistic playfulness and soul. That uh, came and talk soulful social conviction, uh, which is kind of a nice double-headed coin, if you will. So we'll definitely get to the playfulness part. Uh, but first off, I guess. I don't think it's inaccurate to say that right now the single thing you're probably most known for would be Women Warriors. And you've been called America's most watched symphony orchestra conductor by some. And I'm just curious, um, 
I, I'm of the belief that the art is more important than the artist. Um, there's a lot of self-aggrandizement that goes on in entertainment and media these days. But um, I guess an example I would use would be everyone knows the name Sherlock Holmes, but not everyone knows the name Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Everyone knows James Bond, but not necessarily Ian Fleming. And as someone who is quite arguably one of the world's most watched uh, symphony orchestra conductors, I think a lot of people would be familiar with what you've done, but not necessarily familiar with you. And I guess the first part would be, A, how do you manage that? Is that a conscious decision or is it just part of your personality? It's never been about me or about my career. It's been about my purpose and what I choose to serve through the format of being a conductor. It's what I choose to amplify through the voice of art because I because art has always served a, a very high purpose of being a vehicle for social commentary to be a vehicle for the voices of people of history of our current times of of issues facing humanity it's always been um served that very important role and because it does still in the world and because it first and foremost does for me continue to, to play that role, I, I serve art. So it hasn't ever been about me. And I, it's, it's about the higher purpose, which is the name of my production company, a higher purpose productions. Mm. <laughs> it is about the higher purpose of, serve, of serving the, the greater good of, of, of what can be done to connect audiences to connect a symphony orchestra to something larger than that that organization now with uh, women warriors can you just give those who are may not be familiar with it uh, a quick a quick capsule as to what exactly it is and how it came about yes women warriors the voices of change is a 70 minute documentary film that i created it's a silent documentary that honors the lives of over 65 activists who've changed the course of history. And I teamed with eight celebrated film composers who wrote original music for this project. And it's a marriage between a silent documentary that doesn't need any words at all because it's, it's so clear what it's about it's the marriage of this documentary film with this music that gives a powerful and emotional connection for viewers and for an audience to the lives of these women over the last 800 years and to the lives of women who are currently fighting for social justice and voter rights and LGBTQ rights and climate justice and et cetera, et cetera. That, that sort of the encapsulates what this project is about mm. now kind of dovetailing with something you said earlier about you know using music as the um i guess constructive arm for social change in the liner notes to the um cd for women warriors and um i believe on the website you mentioned uh fanny lou hamer being uh, as being a spark which creatively ignited it and is it a coincidence or part of the inspiration that Miss Hamer was well known for using music, gospel music in her case, as a weapon in her social justice arsenal? 
Well, you know, Fanny Lohammer is, like you said, she's the one who sparked this whole project. And, and the reason why I use music is because I am a conductor. I am a musician. And that's my natural place to be. That's my wheelhouse, mm-hmm. so to speak. So it was natural to combine my passion um, of social justice, women's history, feminism, civil and human rights. It was natural for me to pair that with music because that's that's what I do. Mm-hmm. So um, it was maybe coincidence, but she continued to serve and continues to this day. She continues to serve as an inspiration to what I do. Mm. Now, after laying the template uh, and the skeleton of the project, um, you mentioned how you brought in various composers to um, do original compositions. Now, did you ask these composers to come up with original compositions for this particular piece? Or did some of them contribute previously written pieces that dovetailed thematically? Or was it a combination of both or neither? That's a very good question. It was actually a combination of both. I wanted to mention the, the names of the composers. Natalie Bonin, Miriam Cutler, Anne Catherine Dern, Sharon Farber, uh, Isolde Fair, Penka Kunova, Star Parodi, and Lolita Ritmanis. Um, I asked them, well, let's put it this way. I, I asked some of them uh, to compose completely new music, which they did, original music. And others, I, I actually went online and listened to a lot of different things on various websites and listened to their, to their scores and, and tracks. And so a couple of them, I said, you know, this, this would be a perfect piece for this chapter, um, but it's only, you know, a minute, 50 seconds or two minutes. And I need about three and a half minutes. So can you adjust that? Can you change that? Can you um, modify that in some way? So some of them took existing music and modified it uh, hmm. and, and actually had it orchestrated for the first time hmm. uh, and played by a symphony orchestra for the first time. And others nice. did completely new music, uh, original music. So it was a, it was a wonderful um, combination of, of both. Awesome. And that I wanted to be surprised uh, and ask them to, to do new music that I'd never heard. But it was also nice to be able to have an idea of, what I really thought suited this particular part of the film and then, and then, ha- and then have them be able to use it too. Nice. Now this may sound like an off center analogy, but I promise it'll make sense in the end. Okay. <laughs> now using film and I, I do this often using film and history in that analogy in the 1990 film Havana with Robert Redford and Alan Arkin about the final days in Cuba before the revolution, uh, actor Thomas Millian, who played a member of Batista's secret police and who actually was in Cuba during the revolution, mm-hmm. had mentioned, and, and vividly remembered it, had mentioned how he and many of the extras, uh, for them doing the film, because it was so vivid, they talked about how it was almost in some respects an exorcism of some ghost which had been lingering in their minds for many years. And I've read similar experiences by people who worked on the 1992 film Stalin with Robert Duvall mm. as the Soviet dictator and people who worked with Spike Lee and Malcolm X, people who were still alive who when all that stuff happened. Now, the recording of the Women Warriors album was in Riga, Latvia. Mm-hmm. And Latvia has a tragic history, particularly during World War II, first under Stalin and the Soviet Union with the deportations, then under Nazi occupation and one of the most infamous concentration camps of the world, uh, of the war. Now, um, of which in some respect is still recovering. So when I, I remember seeing the concert 
at Lincoln Center, which was phenomenal, blew me away. And I'm still feeling the fallout from it, you know, emotionally to this day, <laughs> over a year <laughs> ago. And listening to the CD, while they're the same, every now and then I pick up a slightly different vibe. And I was just wondering, is it my imagination or did you sense a sort of personal investment of the soul by some of those musicians recording in Latvia, uh, just based on the primary theme of the project, which I would imagine would be spiritually, emotionally close to them? Uh, I'm just curious as to whether you sensed any of that, or is it just me reading into it? <laughs> um, I, I think it's a very interesting observation. I I, uh, I flew over right before the pandemic hit. It was the end of February 2020. And I remember leaving the house and telling my son, I'm going to get over there and back right before this hits. Mark my mm. words. And I took my face masks and my gloves and I took my hand sanitizer. Mm. <laughs> and on the 20th of February, I got on an airplane and met Lowly and her husband, recording engineer Mark Madsen. And I met them in Riga. And um, you know, it, it, it's a beautiful city. It's it's mm. in the, we, we were in the old old part of the city. I was very aware of the history um, of the region. I lived in Germany for a very long time, and so I I feel close to the sort of European historical roots. And mm-hmm. um, I I felt the urgency of <laughs> there's an impending pandemic, <laughs> and I'm back in the city uh, where Lolita Ritmanis. Uh, recorded her Blizzard of Souls, which was the Latvian entry into the uh, Oscar nominations. Mm-hmm. Uh, an incredible uh, film about um, Latvia during 19, this First World War, mm-hmm. that they were kind of pinned in between Russian troops and, and German troops. She, she did an incredible film score for that. I've seen it like three times. It hasn't been released in the States yet, but I saw through a link, I saw that. And uh, I, I was just aware of um, history and the pandemic and, and then these incredible musicians who uh, have so much humility and, and incredible work ethic and they're just uh, it was such a pleasure to be with them and to finally see the realization of this two, at that point was a two year project of all the work that had gone into creating it I, I had such gratitude I mean I cried every day when I wow. was there and um, I even start to cry now. Um, mm-hmm. It was just a um, a validation of, of of long, hard work of thousands and thousands of hours of historical research of of being very determined to bring this to Lincoln Center. Uh, and it was in that moment when we were recording that I realized that we were doing it. And if we could mm-hmm. get out before the pandemic <laughs> hit and, and then spend the rest of the year mixing that, we'd be kind of on our way because the Lincoln Center concert was the launch. And then to come out of there with a, with a CD and all the tracks and then to be able to do what I've been doing the last couple of weeks is, you know, enter film festivals mm-hmm. and do all that kinds of stuff and then produce a CD and have it go on Spotify. It, it, I, I don't know. It was a huge, wonderful experience for me very moving. I was very grateful for the whole team in the States and then in Latvia. And I don't know, maybe that's what you heard. Mm, okay. Maybe. Uh, were you alluding to that? Yeah. Uh, it just, um, like I said, I didn't know whether it was just me reading into things, but I definitely felt a another layer in the music that I couldn't really identify. And I was curious as to whether, um, 
you know, where that may have come from. But uh, yeah, no, that's a totally sensible and satisfactory answer, yeah. Back to it, which I mentioned earlier, some of the more playful stuff. Um, I just wanted to talk, maybe just end quickly with the whole Legend of Zelda tour <laughs> from okay. uh, from a few years back. And uh, for those, you know, listening, uh, uh, there's even a link uh, on this page to, um, and I'm not sure if you're aware, but there's actually the performance that you did uh, on Late Night, uh, oh, I'm sorry, The Late Show with Stephen Colbert. Oh, yes. It's actually on YouTube. <laughs> yeah, that was, that was fun. <laughs> so for... So for those who might be interested, they can check that out. But I was just curious as to how did you become involved in that? Uh, let's see. I started uh, in 2014 on a tour called um, Replay Symphony of Heroes. It was a, a video game kind of uh, uh, production, production. And I was called to do that, to jump in for a few performances. And it went so well that the producer said, you know, I've got this upcoming Legend of Zelda um, production in 2015 and would you would you I'd like to offer you the job of being a music director so I jumped in and um, I was thrilled to do it it was so much fun and um, I mean I've played the games Skyward Sword and Wind Waker Dragon Roost <laughs> and of course I totally fell madly in love with Breath of the Wild when it came out um, I think that's like that's like the bar is, is set so high just as a video game, but also artistically and just the visuals and everything. I mean, you can hear Link's feet going through the grass, you know, all the, the ambient sound. Um, so I, I was completely on board and um, very, very happy to do that tour because it really brought a lot of joy it's, uh, with the audiences, with the cosplay, with the fans. Um, <laughs> it was really, it was fun, 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 the whole tour for two years. It was loads of fun. And then, of course, being on Stephen and meeting him backstage and that was just it was wonderful <laughs> cool well i noticed that some of your uh social media postings of late you've been reveling in the uh slight getting back to normal aspects of things in new york uh you know springtime springing and everyone especially in the creative community little by little trying to reassert itself even if it's just performing or playing music in the streets or whatever so now that spring Man, it's like psychologically just liberating in so many ways, for God's sake, especially this year. Um, what's up next on your agenda? Well, I um, actually have created a pandemic chapter for Women Warriors. Hmm. Um, really? Yes, oh. pandemic chapter. And, and because this is a le living, breathing chronicle of history and current events, that's my my view of the whole thing. And I can update chapters and, and, and switch the order of things. I mean, not, nothing is permanent. We can move mm -hmm. things around. So the pandemic was an, was a natural uh, addition to it. Um, but I also focus on the women um, behind the science. Mm -hmm. um, a woman in the 1940s who was the first person to discover the coronavirus and take it. Um, it's, uh, I think it's called electron photograph. Okay, right, right. Yeah, yes, she yes, yes. Um, she took the first photograph of a coronavirus. Um, women, a woman who's been working for forty years behind the scenes, laying the groundwork uh, for the actual development of the mRNA vaccine. Mm. Uh, a woman in Germany who's uh, with her husband is the co-developer of the Pfizer vaccine. Um, you know, there's a 
there are a lot of women warriors in this narrative as well. And it's such an important thing that's affected the whole world. I mean, why couldn't I have, why, why I could not have not done that. Yeah. So I um, am working with uh, Ching Shan Chang, Taiwanese composer, Mm -hmm. spectacularly uh, talented. And she is going to uh, score the music for um, the pandemic chapter. Wow. And so so I will just drop it right into the environmental um, segment. We have the Stanion Rock with the oil pipeline. Mm -hmm. We have climate change activists. We had a chapter with um, uh, Rachel Carson with her Silent Spring. And this ties into it because climate change is connected to the pandemic and the unleashing of viruses with the warming of the planet. So it fits beautifully into that. And I'm putting it together now and we'll probably, I don't know, have it done in two months time Hmm. uh, by the summer. And then I'll just drop that into it. And it, you know, becomes part of this living, breathing chronicle of what's going on in the world. Wow, that's that's effing awesome. That's really cool. <laughs> that's awesome. I love that. Great. I can't wait to hear and see that. Yes. That's pretty cool. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, again, thanks for doing this. Um, yeah, it's pretty awesome. Um, Thank you, Craig. It's wonderful to chat and to share and 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 um, re- reach out to our listeners. Yeah. And I thank them for listening and thank you for all you do in 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 the world yeah thank you and for those interested there will be links to uh many of the topics that we hit upon in this interview uh so just go to the movie sneak page and uh definitely keep abreast of uh women warriors in particular and composer conductor amy anderson in and well the other way around women warriors in general and composer conductor amy anderson in particular so thanks again thank you (laughs) very cool Can you dig it? Can you dig it? Can you dig it? So, Jim, why don't you begin? Best remake reboot. Or favorite remake reboot. Right, there we go. My my favorite remake reboot uh, was from 2016. It's Pete's Dragon. Oh, cool. Uh, directed by David Lowry nice. and co-written by David Lowry and Toby uh, Halbrooks. Um, this is a remake of a 1977 musical that Craig and I and some of us might have known from our childhood. And I'll be honest with you, the, the original never really resonated with me, even as a kid. Mm-hmm. It just Something about it bugged me. And part of it was because, you know, there's it deals with broken families, it deals with alcoholism, but it deals with it with like whimsical, goofy Disney characters. It's dealing with some dark stuff and making light mm-hmm. of it. Um, and that just didn't, even as a kid, that did, that sat weirdly with me. Mm-hmm. So I was not even particularly even excited to see this movie, uh, but I found a copy of it on a long shelf of DVDs in a local antique store mm-hmm. uh, for $1.50. And then, you know, there's the cast. Bryce Dallas Howard, Carl Urban, one of yours and my favorite childhood actors, Robin, Robert, uh, Redford. Robert Redford. Yeah. Right. That that that's what sold me. Basically, Redford is what really. Yeah, sold because me. why would he get involved <laughs> in a project that didn't happen? Because he even even though he's older and, and could just do stuff for the money, he doesn't. I mean, even right. with something like the Avengers, he does it because he thinks there's something in it that is worth what is worth doing. Exactly, and that's what I was hoping for, and it paid off. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm glad they dropped the musical angle because this isn't a cast I want to hear sing. <laughs> uh, and, you know, they updated it. They said it updated. It's still a period movie that takes place a couple decades before. But uh, uh, instead of it being a seaside town at the turn of the century, now it's now uh, a dark fantasy set in about as dark a fantasy as you can get for a kid's movie mm-hmm. uh, set in the Pacific Northwest. 
Uh, it opens with young Pete being orphaned in a car accident, uh, driving through the woods with his parents. And he is raised in the forest by a dragon named Elliot, mm-hmm. who is the source of these sort of local legend, Bigfoot and Loch Ness monster sort of rumors. Um, our story picks up after Pete and Elliot have been hiding in the forest for six years. And Pete is discovered by a park ranger, played by Bryce Dallas Howard. She tries to reintroduce uh, Pete to, you know, society, I suppose mm-hmm. we can yeah. call it. Uh, right? And... Um, and then she, you know she 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 Pete's explaining to her that that he and Elliot have been out there and she thinks this is an imaginary friend or he's a little weird but then again she's also you know Redford is her dad and like he's also talking when one of the people who believes in these rumors and now she's starting to think wait a minute maybe my dad's not a senile wacko <laughs> um, so yeah again both the original movie and and the remake sort of deal with broken families and how we sort of build our own family with the friends we choose Pete. Is Elliot your imaginary friend? What's imaginary? Well, it's where you make someone up in your head so that you have someone to talk to. It keeps you from being lonely. Are they funny? Sure. Do they fly? I guess they can do whatever you want them to. That's what makes them imaginary. Are you my imaginary friend too? I'm real. So is Ellie. Um, but then to your point about how Redford chooses movies for a reason, he's, you know, I mean, long before Hollywood cared about the environment, Redford cared about yeah. the environment, right? And there is an environmental theme here. Uh, Carl Urban is our, he's a lumberjack who threatens the forest where Pete and Elliot have been hiding all these years. And, you know, not to get too deep in the weeds on it, but what we're left with is, you know, in as much as Small Soldiers was kind of like Doctor Strange love for kids, mm-hmm. this movie turned out to be. It reminded me of like John Borman's Emerald Forest for kids. I never thought of that, but yeah, that's exactly what it you is. Know? Yeah, and and when that dawned on me about two thirds of the way through, then I was just I was sucked in, and I was I got my dollar fifties worth, and then some, uh, and and um, it might have benefited from my low expectations, but overall, I love how the faith in it had in intelligence and in compassion of kids to care about the environment and to care about. Uh, outsiders. That's you know that's really about what it what it did for me. Very well said, damn well said. Yeah, yeah, definitely great pick. Uh, I don't know if mine will be as great as that, but I'm going to go with the 2019 uh, remake of Pet Cemetery, uh, <laughs> directed by Kevin Kolsch and Dennis Widmer. Um, like you sound like you were about to say something there first thing. No, no, just that I'm delighted to hear it because okay. I, I thought I was the only person that liked okay. that movie. So what happened to your dog, Judd? He came back, just like Danny B. said he would, but he was changed. It was when he went after my mother that my daddy put him down for the second time. I thought it would be different with Ellie's cat. I mean, Biff had a mean streak to begin with, but in church, well... It was a nice cat. Sorry yeah. for Gage. I'm so sorry, Lewis. I am. Once you feel the power of that place, you make up the sweetest smelling reasons to go back. But I was wrong. Sometimes dead is better. 
I was genuinely surprised at how much I really dug it. I mean, arguably Stephen King books and short stories have been the most popular source for film and TV adaptations over the past, what, four decades at least? Uh, Mm -hmm. Maybe even more than Shakespeare. (laughs) And it's no surprise that because of that, we're going to get remakes of earlier films based on Stephen King novels. And in recent years, some have been for TV, uh, like miniseries like The Shining and Salem's Lot and Children of the Corn and the recent The Stand and even weekly TV series like The Dead Zone. And then you've had some big screen remakes like Carrie and It and It Chapter 2. And in some form or another, there's supposed to be upcoming uh, theatrical redos of The Dark Half, Firestarter, The Running Man, Another Salem's Lot, and The Tommyknockers. <laughs> now... As William Goldman said in uh, Which Lie Did I Tell, sequels are essentially horror's movie. And, you know, and that ultimately they're done for money, you know, because the studio or production company or whatever wants more of what made the original popular. And even when you have a good sequel, which sometimes even uh, made for legit reasons and which sometimes outdoes the original, like The Empire Strikes Back, Godfather Part Two, or The Road Warrior, they're made or they're able to be made with the sense of artistic integrity because the first film was such a financial hit. So often it comes back to money. So let's not pretend otherwise. Uh, It's like the iron's still hot after all these years, so let's iron out a few more shirts while we can. But that doesn't mean that every now and then you can't get some pretty damn good shirts. And Pet Cemetery, I thought, was one of those damn good shirts. Um, Now, the novel is disturbing as all fuck. And King even wavered for a long time before publishing it because it's every parent's worst nightmare, losing a child. Uh, You know, the what would you do to take that pain away question, if you could, how far would you go? And because the novel was so potent, I, and from what I understand, many others, were kind of let down by the original film directed by Mary Lambert. And she's a great director, and the original film had a lot of good stuff going for it, particularly Fred Gwynn in one of his final film roles as the neighbor who knows and clues in the grieving father of the old Indian burial grounds powers. And, um, you know, but ultimately it kind of felt like the original film was a little too afraid to go there. But this one um, and, and the directors mostly had a history of small independent films and some TV stuff, like some episodes of the, the Scream TV series, which I never saw. But it, it not only pulls out all the stops psychologically, as well as with some explicit violence, but it also has the balls to make a couple of changes from the novel and the from the novel and the original film, which actually caught me off guard. And it's also got a great cast, including Jason Clark, who I think is such an underrated actor. I mean, he was in Zero Dark Thirty. He was Ted Kennedy in Chappaquiddick. He was great in Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. You've got John Lithgow, who was in the Fred Gwynn role. Uh, God, can we talk Fred Gwynn role? <laughs> uh, Amy Simitz, who um, is probably better known on the independent film circuit. But yeah, everything, I I was surprised. I found it in a Walmart cheapy bin, picked it up and said, "Eh, a couple of bucks, what the hell, brought it home. And in the end, I was like, wow, that was pretty awesome. And so I I have to put that in the same category for me as remakes like Alfie, The Taking of Pelham, Man on Fire, uh, and Willard as one of the better uh, remakes in recent years. Yeah, I really dug it. So I'm so glad to hear somebody else really liked that because that's yeah I I've, I've had some significant arguments with people who cling to the earlier movie and uh, you know just the, the opening and closing drone shots yeah 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 they were awesome are just you know you're in another world now and and strap in exactly yeah, yeah. awesome. <laughs> Okay, now I'm going to take the lead on the next one. Biggest pleasant surprise. I'm going to go with Monstrum, 
<laughs> from 2018, a South Korean film directed by Jong Hoo Ha. The working perfect definition of a cheapy bin fine. I'd never ever heard of Monstrum or or the director till I found the DVD a couple of months ago in either a Walmart or dollar store bin. I don't remember which. I read the back, like we used to always do with paperbacks and the paperback exchange back in the day, and said, what the f***? This sounds awesome. <laughs> um, now I'm eager to see um, the director's other two films. Yeah, he did one in 2011 called Countdown, a twisty-turvy mystery about a guy who has liver cancer and finds a woman who's willing to be a donor, um, but who might be a con artist leading him down this dangerous pathway. And another movie from 2015 called The Advocate, another mystery about a defense attorney and a prosecutor who both come to suspect that they're being played when they take on a murder case which has no body of the victim. So I'm not exactly sure how that works, but both of them sound pretty awesome. And I checked, and Countdown is available on Amazon Prime to stream for free if you're if you already subscribed. And I saw The Advocate on DVD, which I'll probably be ordering next week. Anyway, Monstrum doesn't sound like it, but it, too, evolves like a mystery and with a very political bent. Uh, combining history and fantasy, it takes place in the early 1500s during the tenuous reign of uh, um, um, Zhang Zhang, who ascended to the throne after his tyrannical half-brother, uh, Yan San, was taken down during a coup. Now, uh, uh, Zhang Zhang wanted to grant more local autonomy and freedoms to the people, mostly peasants they were, uh, but many um, of his Reformation ideas were challenged by the nobles who took down his brother and who wanted him to be more of a puppet leader. Uh, in real life history, those nobles eventually died off in time and uh, the reforms were able to take place. But the film takes place during the more tenuous era. It opens with a plague, which may have been caused by the nobles as a means of wielding emergency powers over the populace and slaughtering entire villages, supposedly for the safety of others, but actually as a sign of remember who's in charge. Anyway, during one such uh, genocidal extermination at the beginning of the film, uh, a general protects a young girl from being killed, and as such, he's deemed a traitor. Uh, overruled by the nobles, the king is able to save that loyal general's life from execution, but not from banishment. And uh, the general, the girl, and his closest friend, comrade in arms, they disappear into the wilderness for the next 13 years to become peasant fishermen. Now, fast forward 13 years later, uh, when an ancient near-Lovecraftian creature referred to as a monstrum is said to have emerged from the earth and is slaughtering hunters and soldiers and entire villages and carrying a new plague. sends his men to recruit the only true warrior he can trust, the former general and his comrade, and now his teen daughter, who's taught herself medicine and healing, and she's almost like a Quincy or Dr. Watson kind of character now, uh, to lead an army of hand-picked soldiers and civilian conscripts to track down and kill the creature. And as the hunt progresses, uh, some come to suspect that the creature may actually just be a myth uh, that a new set of nobles wish to use, like the earlier ones did with the plague, to quell a rising desire among the people for revolution. 
And I don't want to say anything else uh, because it's great to watch the story unfold and I get out of here manner, <laughs> you know, and I definitely yelled out loud more than a few times while I was watching it the first time. Uh, but it uh, Monstrum uh, competed at the uh, Sigis International uh, Fantastic Film Festival in Catalonia, Spain in October 2018. It hit uh, VOD and digital download shortly after that, and it was picked up by Shudder for DVD release. So when I saw the Shudder label, I expected a nifty period monster hunt thriller, but um, part Grendel, the 13th Warrior, and the Andromeda Strain all, at, all in one. <laughs> and it's kind of funny, while it was released before covid the analogies of how a plague virus becomes a political weapon are just amazingly Trump administration era. Wow. And uh, I got a hell of a lot more than I bargained for in the very best of ways. It's an awesome freaking movie. Oh, and wow, some awesome action sequences, yeah. too. Yeah. In the one that sounds really cool and you totally sold me on it. But two, I, I have seen The Advocate. Uh, oh, that cool. played, Yeah, that played in the AMC near me. Nice. And uh for like one week, but uh, yeah, it, it's 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 really cool. I think, and I mean, I think you dig it regardless. But now with this, I think you'll dig it all the more that you yeah, have this, you know, extra sense into this this uh, director's style and, awesome. and writing style and stuff. It's a resurrected man, Strike. His name is Strike. You made me a promise, a special. Now you must keep it. Go now! Run! This way! citizen from Hastings, Michigan. I'm a civilian truck driver for Creston, Roland, and Thomas. And I've been taken hostage somewhere in Iraq. I need one million dollars by nine o'clock tonight, Baghdad time, or I'll be left to die here in this coffin that I'm buried in. I'm told that if the money is paid, I'm told that if the money is paid, I'll be let go. If it is not, I will be left to die here. These, these threats are real. And when we follow through on biggest pleasant surprise for me this year was uh, from 2010. It's called Buried uh, by Rodrigo Cortez. Oh, okay, I have heard of it. Haven't seen it. Okay, starring uh, Ryan Reynolds and pretty much nobody else. Mm -hmm. Right, right, right. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, I found it in a Dollar Tree store, uh, and uh, you know I was interested in it when it came out, but it didn't stick around very long. Right. Um, and. I'm kind of glad I saw it now instead of 10 years ago because my impression of Ryan Reynolds has has been evolving since uh -huh. then. Uh, and as you know, I might have been in more of a rush to see it had it come out more recently. Um, he's emerged as one of these easy-to-hang-out-with actors who's just fun in everything, mm -hmm. right? And Buried puts him, puts him to a test as an actor and puts us to a test as an audience because what this basically is, is we're trapped in extreme close quarters with him for almost real-time 90 minutes. Mm -hmm. 
he plays a truck driver for an American defense contractor uh, in Iraq who suddenly wakes up inside a coffin. That's our beginning, mm-hmm. and that's our middle, and that's our end. <laughs> that's, where, that's where the whole damn movie mm-hmm. stays. Uh, all he has at his disposal are a cell phone and a lighter and a coffin's worth of oxygen. Mm-hmm. Um, and and the thing that really made me like this was it reminded me how another imminently likable actor, Jason Bateman, mm-hmm. has spent the past decade sort of upending his likability with some sometimes desperate characters, some sometimes bitter characters, just people that... Either people that you wouldn't necessarily want to be around, or you would actually actively want to get the hell away from. <laughs> um, and there's a bit of that in Reynolds' character here too. But at the same time, you gotta even when he is a bitter, you know, an obnoxious bum, he, you, you look at his circumstance and his opinion, you still got to pull for him somewhat. Yeah, yeah, I would be panicking in that situation too. Um, and the the other neat thing about this is, you know, we've seen a few other movies uh, in the not too distant past with with similar agoraphobic mm-hmm. tendencies right like uh uh phone booth with colin farrell right. Locke with tom hardy but this is this is dead on claustrophobic there there are little particles of dirt falling in on the man every mm-hmm. time he moves too much um so it's it it puts him to a test as an actor to hold the screen and hold our engagement for those solid 90 minutes um and it, it puts it puts him to the test as an actor to sell that to us that this is you know that at no point this becomes silly, uh, and it puts us to a test because at least in phone booth he can look outside the damn phone oh, booth. right and look right. around the block yeah right but but this is I mean if you have claustrophobic problems this might not be the movie for you it really is that intense mm. um, so it, it you know it's. Reynolds has been showing us more since this movie. He's been showing us more that he can be a dramatic lead. I'm thinking of movies like the remakes, again, for horror remakes, uh, Amityville Horror. Mm-hmm. Hey, uh, have you seen that? Actually, I haven't. It's, it's better than I expected. Oh, really? Okay. Um, and largely because of him. Yeah, I was, I, was, I was not expecting much from it. And another one that may have benefited from low expectations. But So basically, you know, here's a, here's a comic actor who I hadn't thought much of, but I'm thinking more and more of him every year. And then... And then I saw this, and it just blew it out of the water. I, I would totally watch him do a straight dramatic role without a slightest hint of of his wit or charm, and just let him be down and dirty because he really sold it here. And I'm I'm so tempted to spoil it because the spoilers are so easy on this. But I'm I'm so I'm trying to say as little about the story as possible. Okay. I mean, yeah, don't, don't a rock war stuck in a coffin. Okay. What more do you need? Okay, right, right. So, but yeah, it's just it's you got a compelling comedic lead who blows it out of the water in a drama and. Um, and if you have claustrophobic problems, probably not the movie for you. But if you don't have that, it's it's a damn good 90 minutes, and it's definitely a damn good dollar in the dollar mm-hmm. tree. Jim, uh, why don't you take uh, take the lead on Most Technically Impressive? Okay, well, the most technically impressive movie for me was so impressive that i got to tell you, I've watched it twice, and I'm still not even sure about the story. <laughs> uh, it's... Shadow from 2018 by Jean Yimou. Okay, not from Jean. I'm familiar so, with that one. Okay, it's it. Uh, it uh, played in the same AMC up the street from me where I saw uh, Advocate, but I missed it and it killed me because I dig him. Mm-hmm. Uh, it would have been really neat to see him on the big screen again, but blew that chance. Um, but uh, I found this one in a clearance shelf, a, a, a used copy in a clearance shelf at the Newbury Comics near me. Um, nice. 
And I'm a fan of his period dramas like Judo and Raise a Red Lantern. Right, okay. Right? But I'm also a fan of his adventure films like Hero and, and House of Flying Daggers. Right. His films have always been so explosively colorful, right? His whole catalog is like a study in color theory. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, why wouldn't I be excited to see another another movie from him? And it turns out that this is both period drama and adventure, mm-hmm. except... Instead of it being that standard colorful adventure, the colors here are black, gray, silver, and deeper black. Wow. Wow. <laughs> <Right>? Shadow. Okay. <laughs> it's practically black and white, the damn thing. Uh, except when blood spatters. <laughs> um, <laughs> and it's a, you know, it's a story of palace intrigue with uh, a kingdom that has lost its land to a rival kingdom and a general who is trying to reclaim that land. But even the king for whom he's trying to reclaim it for and everybody in the king's court they all have these competing agendas and it kind of reminds mm. me of the emperor and the assassin from 20 years ago. If you remember mm-hmm. that one mm-hmm. where there are so many competing agendas that you lose track of, wait, who's our hero. And, um, and I kind of wanted to see it a third time to make sure all that even holds up. <laughs> make sure you got it right. Right. right? <laughs> but, but in the two times that I've watched it, um, it's like nothing I've seen before and definitely nothing I've heard before. Uh, out of Zhang Yimou or out of out of these sort of wuxia, uh, mm. I hope I'm pronouncing that properly, uh, mm-hmm. the Hong Kong action movies. Right. Um, it's the sound design here is so rich that it fills in for the absence of the colors. Huh. It's almost like an AMSR martial arts movie for the <laughs> un- uninitiated, the uh, autonomous sensory meridian response. Go Google it. It's a thing. <laughs> YouTubers yeah, yeah. are making videos of people like chewing yeah. apples or stepping on stuff. Right. To have this heightened sound. And this is that, but with blades cutting the air and with <laughs> blood drops and raindrops falling on stone. Uh, and it uses this, this, you know, what would be a YouTube gimmick to create this lush layer of sound and detail beyond anything I've heard in an action movie and beyond anything I've been able to hear on my own TV. Wow. Uh, really makes me wonder what it would have been like in a theater. Because even on my, you know, 10-year-old uh, TV and with my 5-year-old Blu-ray player, I, I don't have a, a, a surround sound system. It sounded like I did. Wow. Okay. Nice. Um so yeah, it's just and it's it's uh oh my god, I'm I'm drawing a blank on his name. Um Xiaoding Zhao mm-hmm. uh is Emo's recurring cinematographer. Uh okay. they've done over a dozen movies together and always with those explosive colors, and he's the same cinematographer here. So it's neat to just see, you know, these these to filmmakers these two craftsmen who have done who've done the other things so well that it's like part of their brand and now they're just going to pitch it out the window mm-hmm. uh and like i say i'll be honest with you the story was was at times confusing and i like i say i don't need to see it even a third time to make sure it all holds up but it's just such a sensory overload and yet a sensory overload in just shades of black mm-hmm. um and and it's it's next time i feel like i'll give the writing and the performances it's due but it's, <laughs> cool. as, a, as a as a technical movie just sound design and cinematography that will will burn your skull and uh if you're if you're a fan of either his his um uh Zhang Yimou's period dramas or the intense action either way you're going to be happy and you're also going to see something you've never seen from him before 
That's because he's sitting right in front of me here in the safe room, Jack off. Magnificent. Even if it is all stolen and looted. Who the fuck are you? I need a talk. Lose your cell phone? I should have hired those guys in Houston. All right, what is it you want to talk about? I want to help you avoid an accident. Krill, Cook, that was you. I warned those guys that one day Crane would come after all of us. Cappuccino, espresso? Espresso. No sugar. Krill was a warlord, but also the number one arms dealer in Africa. Cook used his mining empire as cover to control the Asian franchise. You go Europe, most of South America. North America, too, if you count Mexicans. That didn't leave much for Crane. So I have a deal for you. Hmm. Well, I'm a dealer. We can talk about it. My choice for uh, most technically impressive, and it might surprise you, it sure as hell surprised me, I'm going to go with 2016's Mechanic Resurrection, the Jason Statham film directed by Dennis Genzel. Uh, now, this one could have actually gone under favorite remake as well, though technically it's a sequel to a remake, which I actually like a little better than the first film. The, the remake first film, that is. <laughs> now, the original... Yeah, it gets a little confusing. Now, the original mechanic is, of course, that super cool 1972 near-existential action film directed by Michael Winner, uh, written by John Lewis Carlino, who also wrote, people are always surprised when they hear this, The Great Santini, the film version of The Sailor Who Fell from Grace with the Sea, and 1980's Resurrection. Uh, no relation, but rather the drama film with Ellen Burstyn and Sam Shepard. Anyway, same writer. Anyway, that version starred Charles Brunson as a veteran hitman who takes under his wing an apprentice, uh, this hotshot young, well, basically he's a prick, played by Jan Michael Vincent, whose father, a higher up in the organization Brunson works for, Brunson was ordered to kill and make look like an accident or a death by natural causes. I mean, that's his specialty. Anyway, the remake, uh, directed by Simon West, and which makes a few updates, follows the original storyline fairly closely and stars Jason Statham in the Bronson role. They're pretty much always good Ben Foster in the Jan Michael Vincent role and Donald Sutherland as uh, Foster's father who was killed by, you know, uh, Bronson slash Statham. Anyway, I didn't see that film theatrically because at the time it was released in 2011, we were in the middle of a slew of remakes and Jason Statham films. <laughs> and it kind of just seemed to like a pair of black socks on a black shag carpet <laughs> just blend in <laughs> with everything else around it at the time, you know? <laughs> and so it just didn't, it's like, eh, whatever. You know, maybe one day I catch it. So, um... Anyway, I picked it up in a cheapy bin. Uh, I found it for like four bucks at Walmart, watched it, and said, hey, that's not bad. Then I got curious about the sequel, Mechanic Resurrection, because I had seen the trailers for it back in 2016, and which starred Statham, Tommy Lee Jones, Jessica Alba, and Michelle Yeoh. And it's like, wow, but that cast, I mean, it's got to have something going for it. So I came across a Blu-ray copy for like four bucks, figured, what the hell, why not? Why not? Watched it, and absolutely loved it. Uh Interestingly, if there was a weakness to the original Michael Winner Bronson film, it was that as much as I love it, it gets a little too existential at times, two seventies. Then when it gets to that final act with the hit on the yacht and the climactic chase, it almost feels like a gritty, down and dirty, rough American version of a Bond movie. And I could have used a little more of that. And that's what this sequel kind of does. Uh, the plot has Statham. He's in retirement in Rio, where he's approached to do a series of hits of international arm dealers, and he refuses. 
when he does, his life becomes in danger by the people who wanted to hire him, and he relocates to Thailand, where he later meets and falls in love with Alba, whom we suspect may or may not be a mole, uh, either for the people trying to kill him, hire him, or law enforcement. So she gets kidnapped, um, so that he'll take the series of arms dealer hits, and one of the targets is Timothy Jones, and he has to design and carry out those hits, all done in wild and very clever Mission Impossible type ways, while also figuring out how to rescue Alba. It's a straight up Mission Impossible or Bond style action film. It's grander scale than the previous one, incredibly well shot. It's widescreen photography in Rio, Thailand, Bulgaria, Australia. Um, and more than anything, the best part about the movie is the second unit stunt work is coordinated and directed by Vic Armstrong, uh, long dubbed the world's greatest stuntman. <laughs> Armstrong doubled Christopher Reeve in the Superman movies, Harrison Ford in Indiana Jones and some Jack Ryan movies, Stallone in the Rambos. And he's been the stunt coordinator on everything from Universal Soldier, the last action hero in the original Total Recall to The World Is Not Enough, Charlie's Angels, Salt, Thor, The Amazing Spider-Man, and on and on and on. Um, anyway, to top it off, um, the composer was Mark Isham, you know, who's done nearly all of Redford's films and Point Break, Cool World, Blade, and some others. And he scored both mechanic, the Jason Statham mechanics. Uh, and there's a theme in the first film, which is kind of subdued. But in the second movie, he just kind of lets it all go full out, throws everything to the wind and lets the theme serve as an almost bond like calling card every time the Statham character does something badass. So, yeah, I was just totally across the board impressed with the technical mastery and just the badass fun in general of Mechanic Resurrection, one of the better action movies in general uh, that I've seen in the past 10 years. It's really a lot of fun. Wow. You know, I saw the first one in the theater and I, I liked it. I hoped I'd like it more. And that's mm -hmm. part of why I didn't, it wasn't in a rush to see the second one, but you sold me. That's, uh, yeah, that, I like that, the second that does sound really cool. A lot more. Neat. It's very cool. Don't underestimate what's buried out there in the salt flats. These, these mining towns have a way of digging up really interesting old tech. No way. What is that? That is a fusion inverter cell. Incredibly rare and really dangerous. And you know the Guild of Engineers nicked all the ones we had in store at the museum just a few months ago. Pomeroy was furious. Well, they won't get their hands on this one. I'll make sure it's disposed of properly. Engineers, eh? They think they run the place. They don't know what they're playing with. Fire. Sorry? They're playing with fire. Now, on to fave which most of the world absolutely hated. I'm going to go with, drumroll, 2018's Mortal Engines, directed by Christian Rivers. Now, you have movies which become notorious box office bombs, but by what I've always thought of as the peer pressure perpetual motion machine. You know, where a few, I guess, film world versions of the high school hip kids or Heathers give a thumbs down to something so automatically everyone else has to hate it too, often without even seeing it, you know. I posted something about an older film online about a month ago. Someone made a remark about how, oh, all these great actors in it. But hey, they had to pay the rent, too. And I said, no, it's actually a pretty darn good film. And they just kept insisting, blah, 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 no, this and this and this. And finally, I could tell by the way that they were, by what they were saying and not saying, that they hadn't even seen the damn film. And I called him on it. And that's where the whole thread discussion ended. 
as this, forgive me, but it sounds, but what you're saying is something I haven't even seen in the film. And he hadn't, you know? And sometimes I think that's what happens with some of these quote unquote notorious box office bombs, which may not be perfect, but they're certainly not the, uh, the, 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 uh, turkeys that people claimed them to be. Anyway, for those unfamiliar with the film, it's pretty much steampunk run amok, uh, based on a series of YA, you know, young adult teen oriented novels by Philip Reeve. It's a futuristic post-apocalyptic story. The thematically, the thematic setting of which the author once described as social Darwinism. Uh, remember how in the Mad Max movies, all the characters kind of carried their whole world, their whole existence on their body, like as their clothes. And some people had like hubcaps and like the kids in Thunderdome had like sticks that had their teddy bears on them and all that kind of stuff. Um, well, this is kind of like the larger version of that where... In the in the world after some post-apocalyptic event, you have entire cities and towns which are mobile. They're on wheels, and they constantly move to where there may be better food and other natural resources than they move on. But in this world, the smaller towns and cities not only have to fend off pirates and such, but the biggest danger, which is larger cities which can overtake them and devour them and the citizens, almost like the super tanker and the spy who loved me to add your resources to its own and your population as its forced labor. So the largest of such mobile megapolises, I guess you would call them, devouring the smaller cities, is London, run by its Lord Mayor, portrayed by character actor Patrick Malahide, who's always cool, and his deputy Lord Mayor, played by Hugo Weaving, who is just always, always badass cool, who's an archaeologist in charge of sifting through the possessions of conquered cities to find relics of historical and or scientific value. And he does. Uh, in this instance, the core to an ancient computer, which he can use to create a quantum kind of sort of land-based Death Star-like weapon. Now, in true genre trope fashion, a group of rebels come together and seek to stop the deployment of this weapon. They're led by a young woman whose father was killed during a city takeover years ago, and she now harbors a vendetta to kill Weaving. Uh, through a sequence of events, she's joined by a young man, Weaving's former archaeological assistant, who was ordered killed when he discovered the significance of that computer core. And they're later joined by Weaving's daughter, who was raised to believe that the social Darwinism of the stronger society feeding on the weaker one was the norm, but who comes to realize otherwise. And they all eventually cross paths with a group of anti-tractionists who have a fleet of, I guess you call them Jules Verne meets William Gibson type airships. And the young cast, they're good. Uh, they're led by Icelandic actress Hira Hilmar, whose Amer Amer Americans would probably recognize as Jason Momoa's wife in the Apple TV series C. Uh, she's the vengeful Hester. And uh, English actor Robert Sheehan from the Umbrella Academy is Weaving's former assistant, Tom. Uh, but it's Weaving and the always awesome Stephen Lang, slang baby, as <laughs> <laughs> a cyborg named Strike who is sent out to kill Hester. Uh, and it seems as though he has a personal vendetta against her throughout the films, and which we find out why. Um, and uh, is it a perfect film? No. Um, but it's produced... Uh, and scripted by Peter Jackson, Fran Walsh, and Philip Boyens of Lord of the Rings and King Kong. And it's a directorial debut of, of Christian Rivers, who's been Jackson's storyboard illustrator, effects technician, slash effects supervisor, and more since way back on Brain Dead. So they've been together forever. And Rivers won an Oscar for King Kong for the effects work. And he headed up Disney's second unit on the, the Peach Dragon remake, by the way. Oh, cool. 
And uh, Mortal Engines, it looks and feels like a huge, sprawling, Jackson realized film. I mean, it's steampunk eye candy of the highest order. I'd say if you can imagine a live-action version of a Hayao Miyazaki film, yeah, <laughs> that's what it would look and feel like. Is it perfect? No. In fact, I'd say the biggest debit is probably that it tries to pack too much into one film, and in doing so, it kind of feels like an extended trailer. But it's worth seeing, and it certainly doesn't deserve the what I believe is peer pressure, perpetual motion put-downs of a dog of a film. Uh, it was a box office bomb, but I don't think it deserved to be. Uh, I'm, I'm really glad I picked it up, um, but I really now regret not seeing it theatrically in IMAX 3D, though. So, but yeah, I, I actually dug it. It's a, it's a cool movie. Cool. Yeah, okay. I'm glad that it was in dollar stores or on the cheap, too, because yeah. yeah, the, yeah. the trailer knocked my socks off. Yeah, yeah. And then it came and went so quickly that I never even got to it, so... Cool. Yeah, it was on the list and then it just just, just vanished. Just vanished exactly. It <laughs> did. It, it was, was gone. Those people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, the, the Heather's, the, the cool kids. Exactly. You know? <laughs> uh, <clears throat> my my favorite that most of the world actually hated was actually a movie from 2020. Um, uh, from it was directed by Oz Perkins, written by Rob Hayes. The uh, shall we call it a remake or a reboot or a revision of uh, Gretel and Hansel. Tell me the fairy tale again. It's too scary, you know, start seeing things that aren't there. You've been turned out of your home. Set out to fend for yourselves with only your clothes and your hides. I'm hungry. I'm hungrier than you are. Because you're a pig. Look! It smells of cake! Careful with that, dear. I'd hate for you to start something you can't stop. I wanted. I really wanted to see that. It's it's cool. It's yeah. really cool. Um, and obviously, the upside is you don't need me to tell you the damn story here. We all right, know this from right. and fairy tales and from you know kindergarten puppet shows. It's the same story. Nothing changes. It's, it's not you know. But more of done in like a horror vein, right? Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But the you know the most of the criticism that I'd heard about this was one that it was needlessly dark. But it's PG thirteen, so it's not exactly you know Midsummer or or, or uh, the Wicker right, 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 right. <laughs> Eli Roth movie, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but then the even bigger criticism, especially on IMDb um, and Rotten Tomatoes, uh, people complaining that it was some kind of a feminist woke revision. Oh please! Of the story, like uh, there, the, the people. I can't tell you how many times I read the comment. Oh, they've me tooed it. Oh come um, on! I swear to God! Swear to God! And and. I, I, and it almost seems like to the people who just wanted a straightforward horror movie, they were drowned out by the people who are complaining about it, some kind of feminist version. And to be honest, a uh, combination of needlessly dark and woke feminist horror movie, those to me were actually selling points. Yeah, I was going to say the same thing. So yeah. It sounds kind of a cool angle to me. Yeah. Um, and, and here's the thing. Um, it was kind of neither. It was nowhere near as dark as I was, you know, I mean, it's dark, it's grim, it's bleak, it's not for kids, uh-huh. but it's also not, again, the Wicker Man. <laughs> right, right, Either right. version. <laughs> Either version, yeah. <laughs> but, um, uh, and, you know, hey, I wasn't even thinking about it, but there you go, the the, the remake Wicker Man, there's there's a movie that, that, that uh, I think forces uh, a feminist issue more than, more than uh, this does at all. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, and really what it gets down to is it's a witch story. 
is yeah. not a warlock story, it's a witch story. Therefore, right. the, 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 the evil energy already has baked into it a, a feminine energy. Mm-hmm. So why shouldn't the hero energy be feminine yeah. also? Why, why does it have to be you know, a couple hundred years of Hansel and Gretel? Why can't Gretel have top billing? That's okay. that's yeah. the only damn change. Um, so you know it's it's an engaging cast. Um, they might have made, it, that's that to me is about the only detriment is that that it seems like an indie enough movie that I wonder if some of these were like okay one take done moving on you know okay, like like they, they they it felt that urgent in some parts. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so it's not it's not like you're saying about more lunges. It's not flawless, mm-hmm. but as far as you know, the people who specifically detracted to it. All I can, I just, you know, all I keep think of is 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 Warren Oates as Sergeant Hulka, right? Lighten up, Francis. Like that's just that, <laughs> right, exactly. Like the, every time a remotely feminist moment happened in the movie, and it was it wasn't even a feminist. Maybe it is a right. feminist movie, but it's not. It's, it's not just, a rib. It happens to be that the female character is taking the lead. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. God for fucking bid. So, yeah. Sounds um, like those damn those damn cool kids getting in the way again. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And that's that's really all it comes down to. Uh and another thing that disturbed me even more was, you know, I'll bet you I'll bet you it would have gone over better if they had somehow sexualized Greta into like a medieval Lolita. Right? Hmm. And they don't do that here. They're kids. They're right, kids right, being right. kids. And that yeah. might be another reason that people were down on it was, you know. Oh, I heard, you know, I heard Gretel was going to be a teen. I thought she'd be hot or something. Right? <laughs> you know, I wouldn't it, be surprised if that right? was subconsciously at least yeah, part and, of the problem. And that might have that might have you know annoyed uh, the feminist audience, but it also would have you know fired. You know, it also would have worked for the people who are detracting from it. Um, I don't even think it's a feminist movie. I just think it's a good, solid, like eighty-seven minute horror movie. Cool. Um, and hey, wasn't Alice Creed the witch? Uh, yeah, you know what? Yes, I forgot. Uh, yes, oh, she's cool. Yeah. I love her. She's awesome. Right. And she, yeah, I mean, she pretty much sells the whole thing. And she's also, you know, she. It's not that she gives the witch. It's not like we suddenly sympathize with her. It's not that you know she's just like she did with the Borg Queen. She just takes yes. evil and gives us layers of evil. Yeah, she's three dimensional. Exactly. Yeah. And it's and it's just so it's it's. Don't believe the detractors. It's neither too feminist. If that is a thing, it's neither, mm-hmm. and it's not too dark. If that is a right. thing for a PG thirteen horror movie, <laughs> right, right, it's right. It's just, it's just a good solid horror movie, and and I, you know, I was lucky to pick it up in a. There was a a bunch of five dollar uh, movies in Target with a big, you know, red five on them, mm-hmm. and it happened to be right before Halloween. It was on a two for shelf, so you oh, can cool. get two of the nice. five dollar movies. You can get a buy one get one free. So that's right. where I pounced. I like, you know, I wanted to see this in the theater, but COVID struck. Like it was right, in the, right. this is one of the movies that was playing in my local theater right when the theaters all shut down. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it's a 2020 movie that's already on on video, and and it's it's definitely worth you know a buy one get one at five bucks, or even the full five bucks, or hell, <laughs> you know if a if a if a Blu-ray comes out with with some cool features, I I dug this enough that I think I would even rebuy it. Very cool. Def that's definitely been on my must see list, and still is definitely now. Look, bad man. His name is Isaac. Isaac Izzard. Isaac Izzard. Lewis, he's dead. He died last year. Be here. Uncle Jonathan! Mrs. Zimmerman! It's locked. It must be Isaac. Out of the way. Sanchez, get away from the door. Don't be ridiculous. 
ridiculous. No! So, favorite guilty pleasure. Go ahead, man. Okay. Um, yeah, and this one, it says, I'll just jump right into it. Uh, another one from 2018, The Public, written and directed by Emilio Estevez. You heard of it? Uh, I've heard of it, but I'm not familiar with it. It vanished quickly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and at, at first glance, it's a straightforward, by-the-numbers message movie. Uh-huh. Uh, but then it also turns into a bit of a, a gritty siege movie like Assault on Precinct 13. Hmm. Um, but then it also has sort of an insider's breaking the system movie angle like, say, Article 99. Right? Hmm. Okay. So Estevez and Jenna Malone uh, and the always cool Jeffrey Wright. Oh, always, always. <laughs> right. Play librarians in the Cincinnati Public Library, hence mm-hmm. the public. Uh, and an ice storm is threatening to bring record-breaking low temperatures to the city, and a group of homeless people who basically spend a good part of their day inside the hospital, uh, the hospital, sorry, the, the library. library yeah, um, definitely, which, they, is, which is true, which is, I, happens. It's yeah. always the case at the main branch of Philadelphia Public Library in the wintertime. Exactly. So, in Boston, too, and um, everywhere I've lived except L.A., probably. <laughs> <laughs> probably, yeah. Uh, but so come closing time, they basically unite and refuse to leave. Um, Mm. and you know, some could see this as a, as a, as a have and have not story or, or, um, really it's not, it's not that they're, you know, it's not that they're uniting for civil disobedience. They're uniting to not die. Yeah. You know, it's not even like they're trying to make a message. They're just trying to stay alive on the coldest night of the year is all. <laughs> um, if that's too much to ask for. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, as as the story escalates, Alec Baldwin shows up as a crisis negotiator for the police. Um, and Christian Slater is waiting in the wings as a district attorney who's looking for the smartest way to spin this for his own political ambition. So why do all this? For who? For what? We shake the tree. Let them know that we still matter. God gives us all a voice. It's up to us whether we use it or stay silent. I mean, the police are out there, the media, got their attention, right? They'll forget all about this by tomorrow. Maybe, maybe not. We gotta raise the level. We gotta make some noise. We gotta make some noise. We gotta make some noise. And and then you got uh, Gabriel Union outside just for a few quick minutes as a as a local newscaster. Mm-hmm. Um, and here's the thing: it, it, I'm not sure who it says more about probably all of it, but it says about me, 
for picking this as a guilty pleasure or about the audience that totally ignored it um, or about the film festival audiences at Santa Barbara and Toronto that actually dug it. Um, that a movie that is honest and sincere in an era where everything is so ironically hip, right? And has to be so okay. edgy. That's why yeah, it's yeah. a guilty pleasure because it's noble. That's a guilty yeah, yeah, pleasure, yeah. right? Like, like grapes of wrath, like look in their eyes, mom, you'll see me. Like now we have to be guilty about that because oh that's so sad. Interesting. No, piss off. That's yeah. just that's what human it, 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 human decency is a guilty pleasure now. Yeah, yeah, very much so. That's what I felt like while watching this thing. Is that like it's just mm. a and it's and it's neat to see Emilio kind of doing the old man proud because it felt like a Martin Sheen. Interesting. Yeah, it really does sound yeah, like something. Yeah. It, 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 <laughs> it, uh, it, so I mean, and and I was I kept waiting for Martin Sheen to show up, but he was in Emilio's last movie, so I can't think. Can't <laughs> um, but you know, I mean, I mean, if you if you've seen, I mean, probably the most. Bobby, the one that Emilio did about what twelve mm-hmm. years ago about the the Robert Kennedy assassination. That's yeah, probably, I have that. Right, I like it. I, I love that movie, and it's probably yeah. his highest profile movie. Uh-huh. Um, this is a you know, and and if you like that, you're going to like this. Cool. Um, if you thought that was bloated and too big and expansive and epic, you might like this more again because it's more intimate yeah. and it's not you know trying to make as many points. Um, okay. It's just it's just a solid little movie. Uh, a festival movie that you know, which seemed like it was you know never really meant to play outside of festivals mm. or something, because that's the only sort of crowd that embraces these sort of soapbox movies. I guess people okay. are starting to Maybe call not. them now. But screw it, I, I, I got I refuse to feel guilty. I'm going to own no. my guilt. I'm going to own my guilt. It's still a guilty pleasure, but I'm going to own my damn guilt and say <laughs> guilty as charged. Look in their eyes, ma. You'll see me. This is <laughs> well. You uh, know, um, as I think. Um, I think there are certain people who can, quote unquote, I hate to use this phrase, get away with the soapbox movie. And and again, I think it has to do more with that peer pressure criticism thing, where if you have somebody like George Clooney or Don Cheadle, you know, do a movie or a company like Participant Films. I mean, they were established to make socially relevant films. Mm-hmm. You know, if some if like one of those guys does a movie like um, um uh, God, the, uh, the Don Cheadle film, uh, Hotel Rwanda, oh, uh-huh. you know, uh, or, or, or or George Clooney d- does a film like Good Night and Good Luck or something like that, you know, uh, or Participant does a movie. Every, the, the general public, quote unquote, doesn't feel shame in getting behind it and making it an Oscar contender and that sort of thing. But if it's a smaller independent film that people can step on, they seem to be more apt. They seem to be more apt to express their disdain for a cry for social justice film unless it's a film made by some big Hollywood entity whose butt they want their nose to lodge into comfortably. <laughs> I don't know if that makes I, sense, but absolutely. And I'm glad you said it because I mean, basically I was, I was searching for the words and, and that pretty, I think you pretty much nailed it. Um, yeah. And I think that's where the guilt part comes from that, you know, like you mm-hmm. did, you know, like, like you're, you're trying to be oh so hip and it's not even a matter of hip. It's just decency. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Very cool. Now, my guilty pleasure favorite is nowhere near um as as as, as uh, humane <laughs> and socially noble <laughs> as as yours. Mine is um 2015's Get Hard. Oh, nice. <laughs> I'm going to be attending San Quentin. They're sending you to San Quentin? Oh. What? Oh, god. Are they fucking in San Quentin? Oh. Everybody gets the dick. 
I don't want it. You're not gonna get it. You, you'll be there for three months. I'm gonna be there for ten years. God damn! Ten years? Oh! Why do you say it like that? Oh! It's not as bad as I've heard, is it? You heard everybody fucking it is. That's how bad it is. I'm sorry to remind you. What are you... What are you talking about? Well, the fact that you went to prison. Just before I get to another level of anger, Mr. King, just tell me, for giggles, how do you know I went to prison? It's really quite simple. Statistical analysis is what I do. Here's the deal. One out of three black men will find themselves incarcerated during their lifetime. Imagine a pizza, okay? Okay. There are three pieces. Three black pieces. One of those pieces of pizza will be thrown in jail at some point during its life. You know what? Let me give you my statistical analysis. You going to San Quentin, there's a 100% chance that you're going to be somebody's bitch. Uh, directed by Eaton Cohen. Now, that's Eaton Cohen and not Ethan Cohen of the Cohen Brothers. Many make that mistake. Ethan Cohen, for the people out there who may not be aware, is half of the sibling filmmaking team responsible for Blood Simple, Raising Arizona, Bing Lebowski, etc. Ethan Cohen is the writer of episodes of Beavis and Butthead and King of the Hill <laughs> and the writer of films like Idiocracy, uh, Tropic Thunder and Men in Black 3 and the writer director of the Will Farrell John C. Riley comedy Holmes and Watson which brings me to the guilty part of this guilty pleasure pick <laughs> I'm not the world's biggest Will Farrell fan he never made me laugh oh well, well get hard towards Will Farrell and Kevin Hart and Will Farrell never really made me laugh on Saturday Night Live and his shtick in movies like Anchorman, Talladega Nights, and Step Brothers just doesn't appeal to me. But every now and then, I do like a film he's in, though. I think because kind of like John Wayne in the movie Brannigan, where the Duke of the Chicago Cop come to London, he plays off of the Pharaoh persona and allows himself, allows that persona to bounce off of other actors who also have a very strong persona, and it makes it interesting. Uh, he's not allowed to take up all the air in the room by himself. You know, maybe it's just because I can take Will, Will Ferrell in small doses. <laughs> and if there are other people contributing to the medicine or, or the pie, then I can dig him in those small doses. So, uh, like all the three movies he did with Mark Wahlberg, I really like the two Daddy's Home movies and the other guys. And in the Daddy's Home movies, he's part of a group of strong per personas bouncing around like pinballs off of one another, which includes Wahlberg, Mel Gibson, John Lithgow. I mean, and then in the other guys, it's him and Wahlberg and Samuel L. Jackson and Dwayne Johnson and Michael Keaton. So in those films, it kind of reminds me almost like how I felt that for me, even though he was in Born on the Fourth of July, Tom Cruise's breakthrough film for me as a major actor was The Firm. You know, when I first saw The Firm, it almost seemed to me like he was intimidated into upping his game because he was surrounded by people like freaking Gene Hackman and Ed Harris and Holly Hunter and Hal Holbrook and all these others and a director like Sidney Pollack. Um, and I kind of feel that way about Farrell in those other three films and here in Get Hard. <laughs> you, you can't say that title and not grin. Okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> where, he's, <laughs> where he's part of this quadrant of performers, which includes Kevin Hart, Craig T. Nelson, and Alison Brie. Now, basically, the film's plot, uh, Farrell is a super rich, snotty, spoiled hedge fund manager who, surprise, surprise, you know, there's no narrative uh, shocks here, is framed by his soon-to-be father-in-law, Nelson, for fraud, and he's sentenced to 10 years in San Quentin. Uh, the judge gives him 30 days to get his affairs in order, and as part of that getting things in order, he hires the guy who details his car, Kevin Hart, to help him toughen up for the life he'll have to endure in prison. And why Hart? Why? Because he's black, and obviously he knows about these things. 
<laughs> so Hart's character is offended as hell, but partly to teach the spoiled prick a lesson and partly because he really needs the money, <laughs> he begins this month-long BS prep course to teach Farrell how to survive prison life. And the results are some of the most un-PC, could be racist and sexist and more if in the hands of other people. <laughs> And downright, he effing hilarious, some of the most hilarious stuff I've ever seen. I mean, there's a scene where the two of them infiltrate a white supremacist biker gang. There's another scene where Hart takes Farrell to an off-the-grid hookup spot to teach him how to give another man oral sex, a skill he'll need in the joint, you know? <laughs> and I, the night I, I popped this in, I laughed so hard, my sides hurt by the end of the movie, and I just floated off to sleep exhausted. Uh, the Blu-ray I picked up in the cheapy bin uh, has the unrated 107-minute cut and on blue and the 100-minute R-rated theatrical version on DVD. And I've only watched the unrated version so far, so I'm guessing some of the more rough-and-tumble stuff, which busted my gut, may not be in the R-rated cut. <laughs> so I'll watch that one one day. Uh, but for now, yeah, Get Hard is a damn funny guilty pleasure, which I really don't feel all that guilty about. <laughs> <laughs> but I had to find a category for it. So anyway. <laughs> it's it's really disgustingly funny. <laughs> it really is. <laughs> I, I haven't seen it. But uh, I'm, you know, I, <laughs> I like, I like, I love Kevin Hart, and I like you. I like Will Ferrell often, but not always, uh, yeah, okay. and for the same reasons you mentioned, pretty much. Drum roll, please. All right, so uh, going into favorite cheapy bin film of 2020, I'll let you take the lead on this one. Uh, okay, well, uh, I'm gonna go with. Uh, from 2018 again, I guess just the, you know, 2020 is the year that a bunch of 2018 stuff that had been on video went in 2019. So they decided to hit the chippy bin, chippy bins a year okay. later, right? Uh, <laughs> Either that, or you bought the stuff two years ago and finally got around to watching it. it could right? be that. Could I be find that. myself doing that <laughs> all the time. Okay. <laughs> uh, I'm going to go with the first purge. CNB breaking news from Staten Island. This footage just came in. It's being recorded as the first kill or purge of the evening. The following is graphic and contains violent images that might not be Selena. Hey, come with me. Help me with the other kids. There's something wrong with the world, isn't there, Maya? There is something wrong, Selena. Oh, we have to keep trying to fix it. This is very disturbing, but it is what we expected to see tonight. It's very hard to process that. What we are looking at here is actually legal. That there is no punishment for this inhumane act. This is almost Directed by Gerard uh, McMurray, mm -hmm. uh, who also was one of the producers on Fruitvale Station. Um, nice. Uh -huh. As by I knew, like I knew, I knew this name from somewhere, and and but he hadn't directed much. Oh, that's why I know it. I'd seen him pop up in credits before. Um, it's another one from Walmart. Uh, I had only seen the first of the Purge movies, and I, you know, I dug it. It was a logical extension of one of right. our favorite Trek, Star Trek episodes, Return of the Archons, mm -hmm. and the Shirley Jackson short story, The Lottery. It's you know, let's take those and and amp up the violence and amp up the mm -hmm. desperation. Uh, but I only saw the first one uh, in Walmart last year. I picked up a four movie set 
with you know, one of those compilations, right? That, yeah. that the one case that has, you know, it's not even like the box set. It's just the one case with four discs. That all, and there's always one that mm-hmm. falls off the spindle and gets scratched. Always. Right? Always. <laughs> 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 uh, but yeah, having now seen, you know, from that set, I got to see the entire series. And <clears throat> the first Purge is now my favorite of the entire series. Uh, as, you know, as the title tells us, it's a prequel. Um, but you know, that it came out right before the midterm elections in 2018, uh, seems super targeted, uh, mm. to show us the world that this like sort of absurd parable that the first three movies was setting up. And now it's becoming more hyperbolic each, you know, with each passing. I'm sorry, it, less hyperbolic and more real world with each passing year. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's sort of yeah. what I think they were going for here in an election year. I don't know that for a fact. It's just my personal read on it. I kind of got that impression when I saw the trailers for the first purge, but yeah. Okay, okay good. That that's that was good. I'm glad I'm not alone. Yeah, I, I don't think it was just you, yeah. Okay. Um and that's you know, th- that's why it, you know, surpasses not only the original but the others in the series. For me, sort of the same way that Hostel 2 uh surpassed the original. Uh it takes the first premise turns it inside out and holds it up to the light. And instead of shining light through it, it finds something even more desperate and disturbing. Mm-hmm. Um, if, you're the, if you're familiar with the rest of the series, the purge is basically a 24 hour pre-approved period of lawlessness mm-hmm. where there are no ramifications for any crime committed during that 24 hours. People can murder, rape and pillage to their heart's content. They can rob banks, whatever the hell, whatever thing you've been holding back from doing now is when you do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, you know, the thing that they never delve too deeply into in the rest of the series is how the hell did this even come about? Right. Right. At what point did we, and this is the movie that, that first begins to address that. Um, the, the, the thrust is it's, it was tested for 12 hours on Staten Island. So it's got mm-hmm. a bit of that escape from New York feel to it too. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, the plan is they, and they told people way in advance, you can get the hell off Staten Island if you want, but anybody mm-hmm. who stays will receive $5,000. <laughs> and that gives us this sort of to have and have not angle too, where like there are people who are looking forward to staying because, oh man, I'm going to get mine, right? I got somebody mm-hmm. who I've been meaning to kill for years mm-hmm. or, you know, whatever other thing that people may have been wanting to. Or the other thing that, you know, I didn't see coming was they make a big point of the people who just need $5,000. Dollars and have to stay, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it's like those all those memes you see on Facebook <clears throat> when people put up a dilapidated house or a house on the edge of a cliff and say, would you stay here overnight for a million dollars? And people are like, yeah, right. yeah, a million dollars. But this is $5,000. People are, are risking rape and murder and who knows what else for 12, for 12 you know, hours um, for a potential of $5,000. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that measure of, uh, wage inequality and homelessness and other desperation was maybe aware of in the other series, but in, in, in the other three in the series, but it not, not as heightened as it is here. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't, and it, it, it feels like I'm selling this as a message movie and yeah, it kind of is, but it's also, it's like a punk rock fist in your face message movie <laughs> right gotcha okay, um cool and uh and you know if if all this isn't enough to you know a, a good down and gritty urgent horror crime movie isn't enough for you um you get to see the person known only as the architect in the credits the person who comes up with the idea for this thing in the first place spider-man's sweet old aunt may marissa tomei <laughs> which that to me i mean you know i started this 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 show by talking about an actor playing against type with ryan reynolds mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and here's another like you know she, it's, it's it's a it's a side of marissa tomei that i would not have expected um <laughs> so yeah it's just it's just it's 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 a movie that 
I had you know higher hopes for to begin with. It's not one that benefited from low expectations because, like I say, I did like the original, and but it just took the ball and ran with it. Um, and and nice. for that alone, best in the series, and and my favorite cheap event out of all last year. Cool. Now I actually have seen that four disc set in cheapy bins here. I might actually pick it up now. Cool. Based on what what you said about the third film, which I haven't seen yet. Okay. So definitely. Okay. And Great. the upside is it might stay. It's probably going to stay in the cheapy bin because my understanding is there is yet another movie coming soon. <laughs> so there will probably be that five disc set, which will make just, <laughs> right. You know, that you're going to get that for a dollar in like a week. <laughs> <laughs> probably I might find it at the dollar store this yep. week. <laughs> cool. Now my favorite cheapy bin film of 2020, and it's kind of funny because there's a little connection uh, with something you said in in, in the last thing. Um, mine is 2018's. Here we go to 2018 again. Uh, the House with a Clock in Its Walls, directed by Eli Roth. Nice. Um, I well, based on a series, uh, the first of a series of novels by John Belair's "The House with a Clock on Its Walls," takes place in the mid nineteen fifties when a recently orphaned ten year old Lewis comes to live with his oddball uncle Jonathan Jack Black in I love this name New Zebedee, Michigan, and it is a fictitious town. <laughs> he discovers his uncle is a would be white warlock, sort of the male version of a good witch, attempting to rise above his present status as a not so bad magi- magician, um, aided by his next door neighbor, uh, Florence Zimmerman, who is Kate Blanchett. And she's kind of like his best friend, uh, poker buddy, uh, surrogate brother, sister relationship between them. Uh, they're constantly teasing each other, putting each other down with some pretty funny insults. And, um, not unlike the piece of real estate, we'll call it in Steve Miner's movie house, uh, Jonathan's home is alive. <laughs> And it's still reacting to or cursed by the spirit of its former owner, who was Jonathan's once upon a time mentor, Isaac Izzard, Kyle McLaughlin, who died in the house a year ago while attempting to perform some dark ritual. Anyway, when Lewis finds out that his uncle is a white warlock, he begs him to teach him uh, a lot of the tricks of the trade. He becomes sort of a Doctor Strange junior. And as time goes on, Lewis is fooled into raising Izzard from the dead. Uh, His complicated plot, but it's really cool. His resurrection, part of this long standing plan to use Lewis and powers he doesn't realize he has to find this doomsday clock hidden somewhere in the house and which contains the power to revert what Izzard believes to be corrupt mankind to a state of pre-evolutionary non-existence. That wasn't a warlock. It wasn't even a human. It was a demon, you reckless idiot. You summoned the demon. Yes. Yes, Azazel, to be exact. The Lord's Prince of Hell. Oh, he gave me a wonderful gift. The greatest magic trick ever. I'm going to make people disappear. Spin the world back until the dawn of time. All that will be left, Selina and I. But if you go back to the beginning, history, humans, it will all just start over again. No. I'll make sure people are never born this time. With the help of a friend. Lewis's parents won't die in that awful crash. Your husband and sweet little girl won't be killed. They'll never have existed. No people. No war. It's yet another film based on a YA young adult novel. And again, almost like what I mentioned about the Statham movies and the... um. 
you know, uh, remakes. There are so many of these films out now that, like the pair of black socks on a black shag carpet, they all start to blend together. You know, uh, you have, uh, what, I Am Number 4, and you have the, uh, um, obviously, because of the success of the Harry Potter films and the Hunger Games movies, you had a whole, and Twilight movies, you have a whole slew of movies coming out. Percy, the Percy Jackson movies, and, and, um, like I said, I Am Number 4, and, um, um, the Allegiant movies and, you know, all those. And for whatever reason, the style of this one caught my attention. But what kept me from seeing it at the movies was Eli Roth. Because um, you mentioned, you know, Hostel and after Cabin Fever. I mean, I dug Cabin Fever. I own Cabin Fever. But after that, I, you know, I had my fill of Eli Roth. To me, so many of his movies just kind of almost border into torture porn. And I realize he's doing the homage to the 70s movies of like Fulci and Argento and Craven and all that. I get that. But those movies, they took place in the, they were made in the 70s. They had a very deliberate, hard edge, punch you in the face. Like you said, punk rock style, you know, punch you in the face almost, even though punk rock didn't exist in the 70s officially, um, style of social rebellion to them. So the violence kind of had some context. Whereas when I watch a lot of Ross later films, they almost just seem like skin peeling because we can do this really cool effect of skin peeling. Now watch it. <laughs> you know, and that just gets old really fast. However, a lot of times um, I love it when a filmmaker with a very strong cinematic personality is forced to fit their thing, uh, their what makes them them into the confines of something that already exists. I've always thought of it as sort of like the filmic equivalent of Michelangelo in the Sistine Chapel and hearing, okay, you can do whatever you damn well please as long as it fits into that space. Got to fit into that space. And as such, some of my favorite Spike Lee movies are ones he didn't write, or at least ones he didn't didn't come from his original material. Movies like Malcolm X, Get on the Bus, Black Klansman, uh, same thing with Oliver Stone. You know, I a lot of times I love to see uh, look at what John Favreau did in the first Iron Man film. You know, that's very much a Marvel comic book adaptation, a really good one, but it's also a John Favreau movie too, you know, uh, through and through. Just the attitude, the acerbic wit, uh, the iconoclastic sense of humor, you know, that's very Favreau. And I did not expect to see that in this movie. I think without Eli Roth, the movie could have run into the danger of being cute and cloying and softening the edges but with Eli Roth he's can't go into cabin fever hostile territory but the movie is a little darker than it probably would have been otherwise it's produced by Steven Spielberg and Amblin but it's a little darker than it probably would have been otherwise it's certainly scarier there's some scenes in it that are genuinely scary. I mean Kyle McLaughlin when he raises from the dead he's creepy man <laughs> and there's this scene where these pump this uh, uh, lawn full of pumpkins, jack-o'-lanterns come to life and they start vomiting pumpkin vomit. <laughs> and it's really disgusting and kind of cool, but creepy too. And anybody who's ever been afraid of a weird doll or something in an old house, there's a scene where all of these old creepy dolls and these uh, automatons come to life and start chasing the good guy through the house. That's freaking scary. And it kind of reminded me of how Poltergeist was a family-friendly PG movie. PG-13 didn't exist at the time. Um... But it's a movie that can still give you nightmares because it taps into all these childhood fears. 
And I kind of felt that way while watching this movie, too. It's definitely geared toward younger audiences, probably not too young because they would have bad dreams. But it's, I think, a really great, quote unquote, gateway horror movie, like a really good horror movie for young for young people. And um, yeah, as such, I think it would fit comfortably with movies like Poltergeist or uh, uh, Joe Dante's uh, The Hole, you know, and films like that, which are Definitely scary, definitely creepy, but family-friendly at the same time. And um, interestingly, this yeah, it is my favorite Eli Roth movie. It was his most successful film financially, too. Uh, I think it cost about $40 million. Oh, and, and, and just the production design and everything. Oh, man, just the way it's filmed. It's gorgeous to look at. Um, Ed, Edward Gorey illustrated a lot of the books in this series, and the movie deliberately tries to hold on to some of that gory look. That's G-O-R-E-Y, of mm-hmm. course. <laughs> you know, um, and Gory obviously influenced Tim Burton and a bunch of other people, too. I would say, to a degree, even Guillermo del Toro, you know. And the movie holds on to that look. And there's a lot of really cool steampunkish elements to it. And um, it's just a great-looking film. It's got an awesome score where it uses the great big pipe organ in very clever ways. And um, the movie did well enough where everybody involved is eager to do another adaptation of another of the books in the series. And I really hope that happens. I'll be the first. I didn't see this at the movies. Eli Roth kept me away from it. And now I'm kicking myself for having done so. But if they do make another film, I will be the first one in line on opening day to see it. I really, really fell in love with this movie. Cool. Yeah. There's another one that I, I, I dug the trailer and I just, I didn't make the effort. And now I wish I did. Can you dig it? <laughs> That was a cool show. Yeah. Uh, better than the Oscars. <laughs> you didn't anyway, see what we're wearing. <laughs> right, we're wearing exactly. Pajamas. You don't want to see what we're wearing. <laughs> anyway, until next time, do uh, uh, we meet again up in those cheap seats? I am Craig Jameson of Gold Cottage Online. And I'm Jim Delaney from thelunchmovie.com. And talk to you next time here at the Movie Sneak. Reminder that all film, music, and other clips are the rights and property of the copyright holders and are used here for entertainment, educational, and criticism purposes only. 